Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. All right, what's up everybody and welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining me this evening. Glad you're here and happy you're listening. Well, yesterday's talk was on um, climate change and energy, and I just felt like there was more to talk about. (laughs) There was more to say there. So I wanted to have a part two. Hope you guys don't mind. Hope you're not uh, bored with this subject. I, I really believe it's one of the most important uh, I don't want to say crises because it's not a crisis yet, but it's 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 definitely um, a slow motion car wreck that's just beginning to happen, and and I think there's going to be significant fallout from from this energy policy that our government's doing. I mean, you have to remember this is we've talked about interventions before, but this is an enormous intervention into a, a very critical aspect of the economy. Not just our economy, the global economy. So you've got a, you've got a global intervention going on uh, in a massive way around the world. And we've already started to see problems in some of these developed countries like or developing countries like Sri Lanka, you know, where uh, basically governments like the World Development Bank and the IMF or whoever would help them, World Bank would help them fund infrastructure projects. But the strings attached were it had to be renewable, right? Well, the problem is renewable doesn't, it's not a replacement. So uh, what, what you find is it tends to fall short. And then, and then the assets that, you, that you're trying to power they're not reliable enough. The business models aren't reliable enough, and then, therefore, you're not a, you're not able to make enough money uh, doing what you're doing to pay back the loan, and then the loan the country defaults on the loan. Uh, but there were food problems. There were all kinds of problems in Sri Lanka, and so we're not immune to that kind of those kinds of problems. I mean, a lot of people say they'll tell me, "Hey, Seth, you know that'll just never happen here," you know. That could never happen. And, you know, this reminds me of uh, the stock market. You know, you would say something like, well, the, uh, the Dow is going to lose, I don't know, 25,000 points. Um, I'm, I'm just saying that, okay? I don't know that to be true, but uh, if I look at a chart and the chart tells me the Dow could lose 25,000 points, People would, you know, would look at me and go, "That's impossible." Why? Why is that impossible? I mean, if 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 all your market participants are all levered up, meaning they have too much debt, and all they have is equities to try to liquidate to get out of the debt, then why wouldn't they just? Why wouldn't everybody sell at once? Why couldn't that happen? That absolutely can happen. And one of the problems you see in the market is people don't believe something can happen until then it actually happens. And the problem obviously there is that they've already lost all their money and there's nothing they can do. So you have to understand that it's, these aren't likely, these aren't likely events. This is not likely to happen, 
um, you know, 25,000 point loss in the stock market, but it could absolutely happen. Uh, the fragility of the, of our financial system is, is very much, um, it's, it's very much the way it is, um, in terms of its fragility, uh, that could lead to some problem like that. So, uh, don't ever think that it can't happen here. Uh, but there are a lot of people that think that a lot of, um, a lot of people that think they're themselves smart, like, you know, a lot of, uh, modern monetary theorists, you know, people that think that you can just print money forever and all you have to do is watch inflation to, to control it. Well, there's limits to that behavior and, and, but those people don't believe it. They know oh, it's just an account at the fed and you debit this account, you credit that account and it's just an accounting thing, you know? Yeah. But at the end of the day, what, what dollars are is they're just accounting units, right? So, um, everything that you buy can be divided up into accounting units. And if you just produce more and more accounting units, then that means it takes more and more accounting units to buy everything that exists. So that's, that's the, that's where inflation comes from. That's how you get price inflation. So anyway, um, like I said, this was a, a very interesting interview with uh, Alex Epstein or Epstein. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And then I've got uh, a geologist a little later that I want to play, a guy named Ian Plimmer. And he's really good, too. I mean, this this guy's like, he's got a whole career behind him in understanding these things. And, you know, it's important, I think, to listen to what he's saying in a different way than what, uh, say, Dr. Fauci Dr. Fauci has a whole career behind him, too, but it's one of a bureaucrat, okay, a, a doctor in a bureaucracy. And to me, that, that, that disqualifies someone like Dr. Fauci, but it doesn't disqualify someone like Ian Plimmer, who's had to work in the real world and actually make things work um, according to some market um, demands. So... I want to jump right into this. Uh, I'm going to start with the uh, Alex Epstein interview and and then go from there because, man, he makes a lot of great points in here. And these are just things that people don't think about. And the interesting thing about Alex Epstein is he's not an energy person. He's not an oil and gas person. He's not uh, a climate specialist or a geologist or any of that stuff. He's simply like a philosopher. He claims to be a philosopher. He asks important questions and then he listens for answers that are logically sound and based in reality. It's not renewables that are spiking in cost now, it's fossil fuels. Right, so there's a question of what does it mean that there are price spikes in fossil fuels? And what it means is that there is an increase in demand relative to supply. And the question is why is there a low supply of fossil fuels? Is it because there's not enough fossil fuel in the earth? No, there's more accessible fossil fuel than ever. Is it because the industry isn't very good suddenly? No, the industry is more effective than ever at, at cost effectively getting oil, coal, and natural gas out of the ground. So what's happened? Well, the obvious thing we've been seeing for decades that's been really escalating recently, which is massive threats and restrictions against the fossil fuel industry uh, by governments around the world. And the way the renewables are culpable is 
the promise was that if we restrict the production and transportation of fossil fuels, we'd be totally fine because these unreliable renewables would replace them. But this has turned out to be totally false. So what we've had is a we've had a very effective experiment in whether after trillions of dollars of money and mandates around the world that unreliable solar and wind can actually replace fossil fuels. And the fact that we're having shortages of fossil fuels because solar and wind can't do the job is an indictment of solar and wind, as well as an indictment of these restrictive policies against fossil fuels. Another simple way to illustrate what he's talking about here is suppose that the supply of fossil fuels was just steady. Okay. Now that's not actually happened. It's actually been reduced, right? A little bit by government antagonism and regulations and things like that. But let's just suppose for a second that the production of fossil fuels has been steady, but then you're adding all this renewable, right? Well, all things being equal, what what would happen to the price of fossil fuels? Well, they would go down, right? Because the supply relative to the total demand would would decrease. I'm, I'm sorry, it would increase. In other words, because you were putting more renewables online, you wouldn't have as much need for oil and gas. But what do we actually see? We see the price of fossil fuel going up. We see the price of oil and gas going up. Why? Why is that? Because you need oil and gas too. You can't just replace fossil fuels with wind and turbine and batteries. That's impossible. And the market actually can tell you that just by watching the price. If the price of oil continues to go up, but all the investment is going into solar panels and battery and wind turbines, that tells you that there's not enough energy being provided by the by those technologies. It's just, it's pretty simple when you think about it like that. I thought that was a, a pretty unique way to prove his point. Solar's getting cheaper all the time. It's already cheaper than fossil fuels. If you want to look at the cost of anything involving electricity, you have to look at the full system cost of using it. And when we look at solar and wind around the world, for some reason, it always correlates to rising prices as well as declining reliability. Why is this? It's because when you buy solar panels, you're not replacing coal plants, you're not replacing gas plants, because at any given time, the sun can go near zero. So you have to buy the solar panels in addition to the coal plants, in addition to the gas plants, plus pay for a bunch of infrastructure. So the key point is solar panels and wind turbines don't replace the cost of reliable electricity. They add to the cost of reliable electricity. Because you've always got to have a fossil fuel plant to back them up. Yeah, or a, or a nuclear plant. But unfortunately, the pro-renewable movement is rapidly anti-nuclear. Anti-nuclear, anti-coal, anti-natural gas, anti-oil, anti-any fossil fuel. We are going to get rid of fossil fuels. Biden's defenders will say, well, we didn't get rid of fossil fuels. But what people don't appreciate at all is what these threats do to prices. Because when you threaten an industry, what you do is you scare investors and you scare producers because you're basically telling them, hey, if you undertake the production of oil, which is a long term costly process, then you are not going to get rewarded or at least there's a good chance you're going to get punished. 
well, if you if you send that message to the market, then the market will flee from coal, oil and gas. And this is exactly what has happened. So even though Biden's most of his restrictions haven't yet taken hold, it's not like the Keystone pipeline being stopped directly raises the price. What has happened is his massive threats to industry have definitely cut down production and definitely raised prices. It's actually worse than that, I think. Um there are threats. Uh, you've got Biden and you've got uh, just people all throughout government basically telling everybody, hey, you're not going to be able to drive gasoline-powered cars. Hell, in, in California, they passed a law saying that by 2035, I think, there weren't going to be any gas-powered cars sold in California. And so that is about as antagonistic as you can get. But... But there, there's more to um, the antagonism. I mean, you've got this whole ESG movement. And, and that is cutting off investment funds um, to oil-producing, gas-producing, petroleum-producing companies. So you got big outfits like BlackRock out there that are taking their massive $10 trillion wealth management fund, and they're directing those dollars to, quote-unquote, more environmentally friendly industries. That's what the E stands for, environmental, social, and governance, ESG. And so it's not just the antagonism from the administration and from the regulatory agencies, and so, but it's also this double whammy, this, this financial um, uh, driver is actually sucking money away from, uh, investment money away from these people that are trying to produce oil and gas and into these other uh, energy producing segments like wind and solar and battery. But then those aren't going to suffice, right? Because you still need the oil and gas. Uh, The problem is now, since there's less investment going into it, the cost of those investments are higher. So this is what he's talking about being, you know, the cost of wind and solar and battery you have to add the cost of petroleum plus the cost of infrastructure. This is why it's so expensive. Uh, it's not actually replacing any of these things. Good, say the environmentalists. This will speed our transition. It is Biden's actual view that it is good to raise the price of fossil fuels. But he does not want the political consequences of raising the price of fossil fuels. And this is what I find incredibly disingenuous about the green movement right now. If they said, you know what, today's prices are just a taste of things to come. We want fossil fuels to be far more expensive. We want to have a price of gasoline at the pump. Like when I debated Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he said, yeah, gasoline should be over $12 a gallon. $12.50. What would happen? We'd all be driving electric cars. But they don't want to say this publicly. Most of them don't. They want to say, oh, we want to get rid of fossil fuels. uh, And but we want in the meantime, coal, oil and gas are going to be cheap. Your bills won't go up and then they'll be magically replaced by solar and wind. But they can't be magically replaced by solar and wind because solar and wind don't replace costs of fossil fuels. They add to the cost of fossil fuels. So in reality, the only way to replace fossil fuels is to make energy unaffordable. Yeah, this is why the Republicans run around and they say, look, the Green New Deal is impossible. And the problem is people want to believe it's true. People want to believe that they can have their cake and eat it too. 
I mean, this is always the way it is. This is why people think there's things that are, there's such thing as, as free stuff. There's no free stuff. Somebody somewhere is paying for it. The fact that the government can come in and use its printed money to extract resources from the economy and give them to you, all that does is make it more expensive for everybody. So there, there's just, you know, I understand the impulse to to want to believe that there's this wise group of people in Washington, D.C. that actually, you know, have studied all this stuff and have really figured it out and know how to solve all these problems. But really, our best bet is just to leave it to the market. Your life will be better. My life will be better. Um, if the government wants to get involved and make sure people don't pollute rivers and pollute the air, we can have a discussion about that. But they should not be driving investment uh, into particular industries because they believe that those are more suitable or that they'll be better for the climate or whatever the reason it, it doesn't even matter what the reason is because whatever for whatever reason they're doing it they're doing it and they're doing it it's wrong it's not going to help so it doesn't matter if they have the best reason in the world it's not helping so um, stop you know that's kind of the message is stop doing it but of course they can't stop and they have a narrative and they're driving that narrative. They're driving it through the media. They're driving it through other politicians, people like AOC, you know, useful idiots. And um, even Robert Kennedy here. I'm, I'm very disappointed in Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy is very good on COVID. I mean, he, he really knows a lot about that. He knows a lot about the FDA process. And he knows a lot about um, Fauci and the NIH. And he really, you know, kind of should stay in his lane a little bit. Or do get a little bit better understanding because you know the reality is if 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 gasoline were twelve dollars and fifty cents a gallon uh you would have massive problems in this country massive um yeah i mean whole a whole bunch of things would change overnight i mean you just couldn't we just are not that's like saying let's raise everybody's wage to $30 an hour or $50 an hour. I mean, yeah, you know, a whole bunch of people are going to be unemployed. Well, same thing with, you know, raising gasoline prices to $12.50 a gallon artificially. Uh, a whole bunch of people aren't going to be driving. People are not going to be able to get to work. We don't have an infrastructure. You know, the United States is enormous compared to Europe. Okay, enormous. Uh, I know Europe has trains everywhere and you can get just about anywhere on the train. It's not like that in the U.S. You need a transport, you know, you need a transportation network, which is why we built the public highway system back in the 50s, right? We recognize that. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't quite understand that thinking. And if we all had electric cars today, like if you snapped your fingers and we all had electric cars today, only about 10% of us probably would be able to drive them because the, the grid would be so overwhelmed that we couldn't even get power. And so then how would power, how would power be allocated? 
I don't know. I don't know how it would be allocated. Probably by political power. If you had political connections, then probably you're going to get electricity diverted your way. But if you don't have electricity, I mean, if you don't have uh, political connections, you're probably going to be sitting in the dark and sitting on a, a $75,000 or $100,000 Tesla that you can't drive anywhere. You say unaffordable, but who's to determine what that is? If we're going to save the planet from climate change, we need to pay more. We live in a society that has no clue about how valuable, low-cost, reliable energy is. Because the general narrative is uh, we're destroying the planet with fossil fuels, so who cares how much energy costs? But the truth is the exact opposite. The planet is only livable because of low-cost, reliable energy from fossil fuels. Historically, life expectancy was below 30. Income was basically non-existent, which means everyone had very few resources. The population was stagnant because people had such a high death rate. And the basic reason is that nature is not a very livable place for human beings. The earth is naturally deficient and it is naturally dangerous. And the only way we can prosper and flourish is by being extremely productive. And the only way we can be extremely productive given the physical weakness of our bodies is to use machines to create immense amounts of value. And what fossil fuels do is they give us low cost, reliable energy to power all the amazing machines that make us productive and prosperous. Fossil fuels power, for example, a modern combine harvester that can reap and thresh 700 times more wheat in a day than the best manual laborer. Think about what that does for our productivity. Think about what that does for the livability of the earth. As I've also pointed out, as fossil fuel use has gone up, climate-related disaster deaths have plummeted. This is because the climate is naturally dangerous. We make it unnaturally safe by producing all forms of climate protection. We produce drought relief through irrigation, through drought relief convoys. We produce sturdy buildings. We produce uh, heat when it's cold. We produce cold when it's hot. We have this amazing productive ability. That's the only reason we experience the planet as livable. It's livable. People lived on the planet before we had practical fossil fuels. So the planet is livable in the sense of the species did not, of human beings did not go extinct, but it is not livable by what I would call the standard of human flourishing, which means that everyone has the opportunity to have a long, healthy fulfilling life. That is a total modern phenomenon that depends on modern fossil fueled productive ability. I'm glad he brought up this concept of human flourishing because really this is the only standard we should be measuring against. Um, this whole idea that you can plug a bunch of numbers into a computer model and it tells us what the temperature of the planet is going to be in a hundred years or 50 years or whatever that's just, that's absurd, okay? That's just not possible. There's a lot of things less complicated than that that we can't even model, like the economy. The economy is something we, we understand really, really well, but we can't model it effectively, <laughs> you know? So what, what makes us think that we could model something as complex and as sophisticated is the climate of the entire globe. I mean, this is what I'm talking about, this lack of humility that people have. And, and so it's just really, the whole thing is absurd, really. But uh, human flourishing is a very important uh, thing, right? I mean, we're, we're, we basically, uh, you know, we basically survive 
and have flourished in terms of population growth and things like that, mainly because of what he's talking about here. Uh, the fact that you can, uh, a farmer can buy a combine now and run a combine and produce in a single day what 700 laborers did. Think about how much time that freed up for people to go do other things, leisure things even, travel, whatever. So these, these things were just not possible, you know, even 100 years ago. Well, 150 years ago. So really what we have in our population, and he's right, most people don't have a clue, is we have a false choice. We're, we're presented with a false choice. We're presented with a choice that says, uh, we have to do this or the planet's going to burn. And that's just not what's happening. Okay? Uh, we're going to hear from Ian Plimmer in just a second. And he's going to make a case that this is nowhere close to being reality. So this false choice, this propaganda, this narrative is what's driving all this. And, 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 and the fact that we're going along with it, I say we, other Americans, you know, not, not maybe you and me listening, but there's probably other people. Maybe you are listening and maybe you do believe in all this. But even if you do believe in it, do you really believe the government somehow has the solution? Make the human flourishing live a little bit by talking about people in India. They want practical fuel. So a statistic that really resonates with me is when I was born in 1980, more than four out of 10 people lived in extreme poverty, which means less than $2 a day. And just think about what that means to live on less than $2 a day. It's unimaginable to us in the wealthy world. Now, 40 years later, it's less than one in 10. So we have just eradicated an unprecedented amount of poverty around the world. How has this happened? Well, if you look at China and India, the major places where this has happened, it's very clear. They've used a lot of fossil fuel to uh, power a lot of productive machines that have enabled them to be, have unprecedented prosperity. Now, do they still have problems relative to us? Yes, but their life expectancy has skyrocketed, their resources have skyrocketed, their opportunities have skyrocketed. And what we face today is the decision, are we going to let the 3 billion people in the world who still use less electricity than a typical American refrigerator, are we going to let them empower and be prosperous and have the opportunity to have their first well-paying job, their first consistent supply of clean water, you know, the first time they're not worried about uh, food shortages, are we gonna allow them to have a modern life? Because that's going to depend on fossil fuels. And I look back when I was born in 1980, and I look back at the many thinkers then who said we should get off fossil fuels to quote, save the planet. I'm so grateful we did not listen to them because billions of people would be worse off and we'd all be worse off because we wouldn't have innovations like the internet uh, without all the energy that we've used in the meantime. Uh, and I look at today's situation in the same way. I view today's world as radically underpowered and I think it's criminally ignored that there are billions of people who are poor and who will not become wealthy if they don't have low-cost reliable energy, and that's going to require more fossil fuel, not less. That's a brilliant case for human flourishing. The only thing I would say in addition to that is, let's say you're someone who's advocating for this, advocating that you know this poor part of the world doesn't get to enjoy life, doesn't get to flourish in the same way we have, or in the same way India has in the last 50 years. Who are you? You know, I would just ask you, who are you to decide that for someone? You know, who are their, who, who are their leaders? Who is Joe Biden to decide that 
we're gonna he's gonna shut down the petroleum industry. I mean, where does he get that power? Look, Joe Biden is just another individual that lives on Earth. Okay, we're all just individuals, and resources are allocated based on productivity. Really, you know, how much can you produce? What do you have to trade with? Do you have money? Do you have something that you that's productive and of value to me that you want to trade? This is how this is how we decide who gets what, right? We don't we don't pass I mean look, I mean we do this, but this is completely irrational and will lead to just disastrous results. The fact that we're passing laws that burden some industries and advantage other industries because we I don't know, we have a theory about what the planet's going to look like in 100 years in terms of temperature. That's just ridiculous. And and who who are these people that that have what what kind of power do they have that they can decide this? You know, isn't isn't it a more appropriate way to decide this? Let let the market uh decide, let 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 people's choices cuz really the people living today are the most important people on the planet. Yes, there's going to be future generations, okay? But they're in the future. I mean, a, a meteorite or a meteor could hit the country, could hit the globe 10 years from now, and there is no future generation, right? So it doesn't really make sense to, uh, and if it, let's say it does make sense to talk about future generations having a livable planet. Well, what about future generations not having mountains of debt to live under? That same argument doesn't seem to work for the politicians in that area, but it seems to work for the planet. See, this is just all bullshit, really. These people are just full of it. And they want to be powerful. They want to make these decisions. But I would just ask, who are they? Who are they to make these decisions? They're just another human being living on the planet. And... To me, they've if they're using their political power to do this, they've way overstepped their their power, the power that we've lent that we lent to them. The, the power that Joe Biden has is on loan. Okay, he doesn't have that power. We loan it to him for a period of time. But if he abuses it, we should remove him from office. And and look. Everybody up and down his administration is is abusing power. They worried and wrung their hands over Trump abusing power. Trump never did abuse power, never did anything ra- really radical. And, and they get into power, and they're the ones abusing power and being radical with all this shit. And, you know, really what we should be doing is removing them from power. What on earth would a geologist know about climate? The answer is probably more than warmists know. Most geology textbooks, only for the last 200 years, have had about half of the textbook devoted to climate. And we've seen over the history of time, the planet has warmed, the planet has cooled. We've had major ice ages. Every ice age was initiated at a time when there was more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than now. So how can carbon dioxide drive warming? 
And we've seen periods of time when there's been a thousand times as much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, yet we've had ice ages. We've seen this carbon dioxide sequestered out of the atmosphere, into rocks, into limey rocks, into coal, into petroleum. And when we look back in time, there's one thing that we see, and that is that carbon dioxide has never driven climate change. And so, in today's world, which is tomorrow's geology, we have to ask the really fundamental question to our warmest friends. Show me that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. Yeah, you know, you really can't, um, you can't really discredit these geologists because a lot of this, a lot of the inputs that they've pumped into these climate models comes from geology. It comes from ice cores and things like that, which are technically geologic. But geology is even more than that. It's just, I, I don't know. I, I shouldn't say that. Ice cores is not really geologic. But, um, but to his point, these geology, geology textbooks, more than half of them for a century or whatever, 200 years, he said, are about climate, about the, the shifting climate over the different, um, uh, different periods that, we, that we've defined in the, in the geologic history. I don't know what all of them are. I know the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the famous ones are the ones with the dinosaurs, you know, like the uh, uh, Jurassic period and stuff like that. I think right now we're in the Holocene or something like that. But anyway, um, yeah, these geologists actually know a lot about climate change, but it's all become about the model. All these, all these different institutions now have these models, and the models are wrong. I mean, they run them today, and, and they're comparing uh, the models that they run today versus the models they ran 10 years ago or the actual data from the model 10 years ago versus the data today, and they're way off. They're way off. The models are wrong. Now, maybe they could, over time, they can get these models to be more accurate. I don't think so because there's just too many variables in our, in our atmosphere to, um, to try to do something like a model. I mean, their model might have, uh, I don't know, 100 variables in it. Well, there's maybe five times that in the atmosphere, maybe 10 times that, I don't know. And they don't actually know how, how the, how the variables interact with one another. So there's just a whole lot of what we don't know. And instead of just admitting that we don't know, you know, having some humility, we, you know, we, we use the government to club everybody over the head with what we think we know, mainly so we can get power over them and, and, and lead them around with a ring in their nose or something. Um, but you know, that's why I always talk about, there's just huge lack of humility, uh, in our government. They think that they have all the smartest people and they have figured all these problems out and the rest of us just need to shut up and listen. I mean, that's their attitude. It's, it's crazy actually, but, uh, that's what we're dealing with. That question cannot be answered. Show me that the human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. And of course, if they attempt to, you can say, well, wait a minute, folks. 3% of annual emissions are from human activities. The other 97% are natural. 
from degassing of the oceans and from volcanoes and bacteria and all sorts of other sources. I'm breathing out 4% carbon dioxide, breathing in 0.04%. So if you can show me that that 3% drives global warming, you've got to show me something even more difficult, and that's that the 97% of natural emissions don't drive global warming. So we are dealing with absolute nonsense. And this nonsense has gone on for a very long period of time. And the nonsense is not based on the fundamentals of science, and that is evidence. As soon as one has a contrary view, one's parenthood gets questioned, you get shouted down, you get called all sorts of names, and I don't worry about those. Just show me that the human emissions of carbon dioxide drive climate change, and it hasn't been done. Well, I would say that this guy's from Missouri, but it doesn't sound like he has a Missouri accent. You know, Missouri is the show-me state. But uh, this is an interesting point that he brings up. Only 3% of carbon dioxide is produced by humans. I mean, this is something we can measure now. We know, we know what humans breathe in and out. We know what industry produces. We know what cars produce. But he's saying only 3% of carbon dioxide is man-made or man-generated, human being generated. The other 97% comes from natural sources, volcanoes, the ocean, um, bacteria, cow flagellants, you know, all this stuff, or just animal flagellants in general, not, not, not just cows. You could say, well, we, don't, we should all go vegan. That way we don't have any cows, but just animals in general, right? And so... The question then becomes, what do you do? I mean, if that's all nature, right? I mean, you could make a case, I suppose, that human beings are part of nature, but maybe coal-fired power plants are not, and gas-generating power facilities are not, and the car is not, you know, the combustion engine is not. You could you could make a case that those those aren't all naturally occurring. So we could, you know, we could do something to curb that. But what he's talking about is you're only curbing you're only curbing three percent of it. What are you going to do about the other ninety seven percent, which is naturally occurring? Do we, I don't know, try to pour a bunch of concrete in a volcano so it doesn't outgas? Do we put big mylar sheets of plastic over the ocean to try to capture carbon dioxide coming out of the ocean. I mean, you, you see how ridiculous this can get. I mean, there, there's just, there is no way that the 3% could be overwhelming the 97%. So what's happened here is you basically... Uh, you know, some smart people sat around a room. They tried to figure out, well, how can we, you know, what, how do we, how do we make this boogeyman scary? And they created all this crap. I mean, I don't have any evidence of that. I don't know who did it or anything like that, but I can just tell you that none of this is real. This has got our entire world turned on its head and for, for nothing. I mean, we're going to spend a lot of treasure there, you know, tax money, uh, economic trials and tribulations. There's going to be a lot of turmoil 
out of this. And it's for nothing. It's for no reason at all. And if you start thinking about it like that, it should start making you angry, really, that they are taking money from you to, to do some boondoggle thing uh, to control us, to spend a bunch of money, to empower themselves, to enrich themselves. A lot of these guys are getting rich off this stuff. So anyway, it's getting a little late and I'm getting kind of preachy. So I'm going to go ahead and wind up the show. I want to thank you for coming in today. Look, I, you know, share the show, send it around to some friends and family members, coworkers or whatever, but share the show. And, um, Maybe go out and write me a review on your podcatcher if it's a positive review. If, if you're going to write a negative review, just don't write one, please. Just, uh, just stop listening if, you, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you're drawn to write a negative review. But look, the most important thing, as I say all the time, is to come back and listen. Come back and listen tomorrow, and if you do, I'll be here to do it all over again on Who Gets to Decide.